when you're with Tracy, you can't help but be in a supernatural realm. I have history with her, but I also have a deep and very strong affection for her and her life and what she carries as a woman in the kingdom. And I guess I've just been privileged to share some of those moments in our history together. God used her as an example of a strong and godly woman. And I'm forever grateful for that. So, before I cry, here's Tracy. Thanks. I'm on. Yay. Well, it's good to be back. Whenever I come back to Weaverville, I come a little early. And um, I go and visit some of my old haunts. And so I was up early. I was on East Weaver, too. And I saw the snowflakes this morning. Just a few little itty-bitty ones. And this time, you know, when I came up, I, what drew me to Weaverville, my brother was in jail up here, so I was just coming up to visit him, and I was a teenager, I'm 60 now, so this is going back 40-something years, and I just, I would camp, and uh, so I went to East Weaver Campground, I camped beyond the campground, because in those days, the Vietnam vets were back, and they were growing weed out in the boonies, and so the campgrounds weren't always the, the, the safest places, and um, and I was just kind of a bum in the woods, and on visiting day, I go visit my brother. I was a young Christian, just out of the army, and uh, and there were some people in Mountain Chapel. I was kind of burned out on church, had been disillusioned, but there were people that just really reached out to me. And I wouldn't go to church, but I would go to the home groups. So I go to the Dairy Berries home group, because at the time it was winter, and it was freezing out there, and initially it was just to get into a warm place at night, and they had free cookies. So I go to Dairy Berries on Tuesday nights and the Harper's, you know, home group on Wednesday nights and Ballatin's home group on Thursday nights. <laughs> and people thought I was so spiritual because <laughs> I went to all the meetings. I was just hungry and cold. And uh, and there was another family that, you know, I, I, I loved the Lord. I just didn't love the church so much in those days. And I, I didn't know a lot about grace. I was a bit legalistic. And um, but so I would go out at kind of like midnight to two o'clock in the morning and lead people to the Lord between the two bars in town, you know, the New Yorker and the Diggins. And um, and there were just a few people. The Valentins would take in these people. They were right off the street. They were pretty raw. They were addicted. They were possessed. They had all kinds of issues. And I remember bringing a, a guy to home group one night and he was slithering across the floor. <laughs> And I, I told Chris, I go, he's saved, really. <laughs> he just needed some house cleaning. You know, he had company. But another uh, family I used to, that used to take in some of these people uh, were the Wellers. And, and Pam Weller lived here. She came up with me. She hasn't been up here in years. Pam, why don't you wave to everyone? 
And their house had burnt down. And they were rebuilding. And just, I think they were the skinniest family in town. Uh, they didn't feed me all that much. Because <laughs> they didn't have all that much. But what they had, they shared. And it was the same with the Valentins. It was the same with everybody. You just, you give what you got. You know? And um, so I always go down memory lane. I go check out the places I used to camp and the people. We went by their old house that they built. And uh, I had this guy one night. It was about 2 in the morning. And he was standing under uh, a street light in town. And I was just about to go back to kind of my old haunt. And I went up to him to share the Lord with him. And he was huge. And he had a big scar across his face. And he was snatching bugs out of the air under the light and eating them. And so I'm, and he had this big club, this walking stick kind of club. So he's kind of a scary looking guy, but I go, well, no one else is on the street. So I went up and told him about Jesus, and he wasn't, his mind was just fried. You know, he had been an addict. And I was getting nowhere, and I start walking away, and he starts to cry. And he says, oh, don't leave me, don't leave me alone. So I came back up to him and says, okay, and I'm still a little afraid of the club. I go, kneel down. He kneels down in the street. He gives me his club, and I pray for him, and God healed his mind. But he gets saved, but now what? What do I do with this big guy? Now, what happened is he got out of prison, and he was just roaming around from town to town, uh, eating bugs and eating what he could with a fried mind. So he gets saved, and who wants to take a guy like that into their home when they have little kids? Well, the Wellers did. I mean, a home that didn't even have walls up yet or windows in. or door. And they just adopted Dave, and they started discipling him. And very informally, they were discipling me, too. we go over and, um, and just work on the house and put insulation in and two-by-fours and frame it out. And, and that's what Weaverville was like in those days. Probably still is. I don't know. But it was just people giving what they have, just bringing... Uh, nobody's into their home. And, uh, well, it's a new year, and I'm very happy for that because last year was brutal. It was, how many of you had a rough year last year? It was a rough year. What, rough year for us, it started with two Class 4 cyclones. I want to pass out a couple pictures, show you my world a little bit. I got here a little early, but I didn't have time to put it up on the screen. So can you help me? Just There's only a few, so you're going to have to group together. Uh, that's one set of pictures. These are some of my neighbors. And can you pass those out? Mm, I'll keep one. <laughs> so the first is last week's photo of a, um, a rock python. And it probably weighs about as much as I do. We have so many snakes, and this year it's just like they all came out. The enemy was just after us. Now, we have acres and acres of land with schools and clinics and little kids. We have babies and preschools and kindergartners. We have hundreds of kids every day on the property. Um, in one of our, I'm, I'm directing three ministries now, so one of them, Africa 180. Um, we have about 30 staff there and about another 12 staff over at our vocational training center And we give a bounty for anyone who kills a snake. Because there's 32 species of venomous snakes there and 35 non-venomous, but some of them look just alike. So the 
the deal is we kill the snake if it's on our land, and if it's not on our land, we let them go because they eat the rats who eat the crops. So they're a part of the environment. We need, we need the snakes, but not in our preschools or kindergartens or our houses, right? So we give them about $3. That's half a day's wage there. Now, the Mozambicans are afraid of the snakes just naturally because they're deadly, but also uh, they have a lot of superstitious beliefs about snakes. They think witch doctors turn into snakes at night. And such. So it's a double fear, but they're really poor too, so they want that $3 bounty. The snake has to still be wiggling because I don't want them bringing snakes from home <laughs> for the bounty. So last month we got 22 snakes on our property, and this was the last one, the, the Gabon. Um, no, that one is a, a rock python. And so there's little snakes and big snakes. My friends there say there's only two snakes you need to worry about, the long skinny ones and the short fat ones, which is essentially all the snakes. They're either long and skinny or they're short and fat. We have five species of cobra. We have puff adlers, uh, black mambas, green mambas. So it's, it's a snaky place. The other map is a map of where we live. I circled it in the middle. We had two class four cyclones last year. Uh, Bera is the second largest city in the nation. It's about a three-hour drive for us. It was 90% destroyed. Now, I'm telling you this because years ago, I had people from Bethel in an intercessory group come before I built and developed any land. And this land was, this area was so strategic. And we went on just a, an intercessory march around a territory of about 50 miles. And that's the 50 miles that I circled on this map. It's a very strategic location. And as you can see, this map was made by uh, the world of um, Save the World or something. It was a, uh, it's like the Red Cross that came for aid. And this was a satellite image, and they put it on the map. All the red are the roads that were destroyed by the cyclone. And as you can see, there's devastation north, south, east, and west, except for this 50-mile little circle, which was the place where we prayed for years ago. And we set up our base there. And God just kind of covered us. We still had torrential winds and, and rains, and uh, about one in four of the homes were destroyed. But because our area was, the, the cyclone came up to us and jumped over and then continued on. And just wreaked havoc. But we were in an area that was kind of just, it was like we were under the palm of God's hand. And so when the disaster uh, relief organizations came, there was a place that they could work from. Now, there was one area about a four-hour drive from us that was totally flooded out. In fact, one area, there they had a crocodile farm, and they farmed the crocodiles for their leather. Now, these are crocodiles. They're not alligators. Alligators are small. Crocodiles are like Jurassic Park. They're enormous. Well, it flooded out, and 13,000 crops got loose in town. Can you imagine? People were eaten alive. People were in trees for days. And the only water they could drink was the polluted water. So after flooding comes typhoid, cholera, all your waterborne diseases. So it was just, it was catastrophic. But there was this one region that uh, they had outreaches going there for like 20 years. No one had received the Lord. But after that flood, they were open. And we've been going back monthly now, just driving there. It's about four miles. It's, it's a gauntlet to get there. But the people are receiving uh, the Lord now. And just 
they experienced a very practical demonstration of God's goodness and love through our medical outreach, through our feeding programs, and now their hearts are wide open. So it's, it's kind of the beauty for ashes that God always brings about somehow, doesn't he? But anyway, so we had that. We, I lost two nurses in our clinic. We had one pediatric nurse practitioner. She was dynamite. She's about 36 years old. She's been there six years, and she had malaria 42 times. And eventually, you know, her health just couldn't stand it. So we lost our nurse. We went through the cyclones. We have the... Uh, the infestation of snakes. <laughs> and then the government required all nonprofits to re register their organization. And we cannot issue new visas until that's complete. So I've, I've got missionaries exiting, and I can't bring in new missionaries. So we're all like working double time. And, uh, but God. You know, he still gives grace. He makes a way where there is no way. Nothing's impossible for him. And it's those seasons that your roots go down deep. And you're tested. And you're, you're, you're stretched. Your health is touched. Your, your emotional well-being, your faith is challenged. The Islamic, um, uh, Islam knows that Mozambique is a white harvest too. And so they are sending people to evangelize for Allah. And so there's a lot of, of stirring up in this last year. I was never so glad to say goodbye to 19, uh, 2019 and hello to 2020. Because it's those times we just, we got to hang tight. And he's holding on to us. We, we need to hold on back. And even those times you lose your grip, he's got you. I remember one time years ago, I was in the Philippines living on the dump at a time. And just another season that was rough that was tough and and um and i'm going god i I, i'm trying to hang on to my faith i don't even know if i can hang on to my sanity i had tuberculosis i ran a clinic and had medicine for my patients but none for myself Uh, my leader who i just adored abandoned his family on the dump and ran off with a filipino gal my parents were getting divorced at home. I had no ticket home. I'm living on a garbage dump. This was a hard time. And I'm going, God, I'm trying to hang on, but where are you? And I didn't feel his presence. It was, it was just, it was a time of struggle. And I looked out my little windowless window in my little hut on the dump. And I saw this man teaching his little girl how to walk on the garbage. And he's got her hands, and she's taking step after step. And then after a little bit, she shakes him off, and she wants to do it herself. You know, so he's, he's kind of hovering behind her, and she's picking her way through the garbage. And then she trips, and she's about to do a face plant in that muck. And I'm just like, going, oh. But Dad reaches down and snatches her up in his arms, and all is well. And the Lord just says, I got you, even if you lose your grip, even if you trip and fall on your face, even if you lose your sanity, I've got you. I've got you. And that pulled me through. And there's those times when he brings others into our life to encourage us. So like, remember why you're here. You can lose your vision. You can lose hope in situations. And that's why we need church. That's why we need the body of Christ to, to come around us. And so you can't see your way forward right now. So I'm just going to throw my arm around you. Let's go. Remember Danny Silk and Sherry? When we used to have church in the town theater, we had a night meeting one day. One night. 
was a cold winter night, so all the leaves were down and the trees were all craggy. And little Levi was about five years old. And they're walking home. Danny was kind of wrapping up the meeting. And, um, and Sherry was walking home with Levi, and he was scared. So he's hanging on to his mom's hand. He says, Mom, I'm just going to hold your hand, and I'm going to close my eyes, and you just tell me when we're home. How smart is that? He, God knows the way. He knows the way through. And sometimes we just have to, we're getting, you know, we're looking at the wind and the waves, and we get scared. And we just got to hang on tight, close our eyes. Or sometimes you feel like you're hanging from a thread. But if the thread is from the hem of his garment, you're going to be just fine. It will hold you. It will hold you. So I understand you had um, a funeral and memorial service this last week. Hmm. That's always hard. You know, we. I live in a place where there's Death and disease, we see it all the time. And, and the thing that pulled me through was it gave me a more eternal perspective. Eternity's there, but sometimes we're so preoccupied with what's happening around us, we lose sight. We lose sight of it. And, I mean, I've buried kids in mass graves. If it's, I, I'm, I think I probably know more people on that side of eternity than I do on this side these days. And... Um, but we get distressed because God, he created us perfect. So he didn't create us with the capacity to really deal with death and disease or guilt or shame. We were never meant to carry guilt or shame. And that's why it's so heavy and why we struggle with it when we've done something that we're ashamed of or feel guilty about. We were never designed to carry that. And it's like I'm not designed to carry a, an 80-pound backpack. And after a while, if I got one on my back, every waking moment, it's like, where do I how, can, how do I get rid of this weight upon me? That's what sin is like. That's what grief is like. Because we weren't designed for it. And that's why it hurts. And that's why it frustrates us. And, and when we're living in sin, what people do... Um, let me just give you an example. Like homosexuality. I have never met a homosexual that says, I know it's wrong. I know it's against nature and against God's design. But I'm going to do it anyway and I'll deal with the consequences. That would be honest. But instead we say, no, I was born this way, or everyone's doing it. We blame shift. We deny it. We, because we can't carry, not very far, that guilt and shame. It erodes us. It, it beats us down. So I decided a long time ago, if I'm going to lie, if I'm going to sin, if I'm going to do so, I'm just going to be honest with it. You know, I go, okay, I was a white lie. Well, really, there's no such thing. A lie's a lie. And, but then it, there's room for the Holy Spirit to come and bring conviction and, and provide me a way of escape, which is repentance, confession, repentance. And, and when, once you get there, you humble yourself, you repent, like, God, I blew it. I chickened out. I lied. I was trying to save face or I didn't want to hurt their feelings. All the excuses we give, he, he forgives sin. He doesn't forgive excuses. He forgives sin. So we've got to call it what it is. And not just our own, but with each other. Like, hey, brother, says, what were you thinking? Come on now. And there is a way out. Through confession, through repentance, through Jesus. Thank you for carrying that one to the cross, too. And recalibrating, getting back up and going forward, right? And it's the same with our faith. Sometimes it's weak. We have, you know, the disciples, they're, they're in a storm at sea. And, 
And these are seasoned sailors. It was probably Peter's boat. Uh, he was the eldest in a group, according to most theologians. Most, a lot of theologians think the disciples, most of them were teenagers. Because, remember when James and John said, Mom, will you go talk to Jesus and ask him to put me on your left and, and the other on the right? Like, what grown man would ask Mommy to go talk to their boss, their leader, their, you know? Or, you know, their... Peter had his own boat, but the others were fishing in their father Zebedee's boat. They didn't have their own boats yet. Most of them probably weren't married yet. Uh, Remember when it came time to pay the taxes. Every man over 20 had to pay taxes. So Peter goes to Jesus like, oh, do we pay the taxes? And Jesus says, yes, go to the brook, catch a fish, pay for your taxes and mine. Why didn't he pay all the disciples' taxes? They probably weren't old enough. But Peter was over 20. Jesus was 30, 33. So they were young and in many ways full of zeal and no wisdom and inexperienced. And, um, and they're in a boat at sea. They had already seen many miracles. But they're distressed because, you know, many boats went down. A lot of people died on the Sea of Galilee. And then here comes Jesus walking on the water. They thought it was a ghost. That's scary, too. Imagine you're really distressed. You don't know if you're going to live or die, and then you think you're seeing a ghost. That would be distressful. Peter, what do we do? You're, it's your boat. You're the most seasoned captain here. And your captain gets out of the boat and walks to the ghost. That's a bad day. You know, that's a bad day. There goes your last vestige of hope. But, you know, he had eyes to see. Jesus, is that you? If it's you, I'll come to you. The boat's going to sink. He knows that. Why hang on to a sinking boat? But isn't that what we do? We hang on to a dead-end job. We hang on to a dead-end this or that. And, And Jesus is walking on the water. And we won't go to the one thing out there that's floating. (laughs) So there's times when you go, you know, you, you lose a loved one. You go through a trial. You're, you're struggling. And you're going like, God, where are you? And he is right there. And he is holding on back. But sometimes we lose sight of that. And last year has been like that for me. I mean, building a ministry. And, and we, we've saved over thousands of lives. We had civil unrest. It was a presidential election a few months ago. So there's a rebel party that is fighting the government with bullets. And they're guerrillas. And they, their headquarters in the whole nation, their headquarters just happens to be our neighborhood. So there are bullets flying up and down the highway. People are getting killed. Right near where our preschool is. You know, and God, where are you? But he's there. The, the issue is, do we have eyes to see him? Do we have eyes to recognize, no, that isn't the ghost. That's That's Jesus. Or Mary, no, Mary, that isn't the gardener. That's Jesus. (laughs) Or the disciples on the road to Emmaus. That isn't a stranger. That's Jesus. And then every now and then he does something that we recognize. He breaks bread. And they go, oh, we know that one. That's Jesus. We need to have eyes to see the invisible. You know, and, and... Sometimes he pulls away every prop, every person, everything we put hope 
and security in because it's faith that inherits the kingdom. It's faith that that is the key to the kingdom of heaven. We can't inherit it by sight. I, re- I think of the Apostle Paul who has this encounter with Jesus. He's knocked down, struck blind. It wasn't a fun encounter. It was, he was getting spanked. All right? He's getting rebuked. And, and then at some point he's taken to the third heaven. So he has seen and experienced things that most of us have not. But he comes back and he runs his race with such zeal. They beat him. They whip him. They imprison him. They stone him and leave him for dead. Remember that one passage where he's recounting some of the things he has endured. The shipwrecks, the beatings. And they are actual things. And then he throws in, you know, through through many trials and many tributes, through many deaths, he says that. And I go, well, that's hyperbole. But I'm looking at the uh, context, and there's no hyperbole in it. There's no exaggeration in it. Before and after, it's all about actual things that Paul went through. Many he, maybe he did go through many deaths. Like that time they stoned him, they thought he was dead, they dragged him out of the city, threw him on the dump heap. If he were alive, they, would have, they, they, you know, they thought he was dead. They go back to the city, and then he rises up again, Maybe he rose from the dead again. And he goes back to the city and goes, another thing. And he starts preaching again. That had to be freaky. I go, maybe he was raised again. I don't know. We hear about Jesus' resurrection. It says there was a mighty earthquake. The earth shook. The graves, the tombs opened. And the, the bodies of the righteous were raised to life again. How freaky would that have been? So just three days before, they're all mourning. Jesus has died on the cross. But then he rises again. He appears to many. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it says he appeared to uh, 5,000 disciples at one time. So for 40 days, he's appearing. But not just him, David and Joseph, all these other guys are popping out of their graves appearing too. That had to be scary. So there's times when it's abundantly obvious that God is he's manifesting himself. And then there's times when he's not because he's growing our faith. Do you tr- faith is just a old-fashioned religious word for trust. Do you trust me? Do you believe that what I said is going to happen? So I'm going to talk just a little bit about the things that hold me in those hard times. Think of um I'll read it to you. Um Elijah. Now, he had, he had some awesome times. The story is in 1 Kings 19. He's in the desert. There's been three years of drought. Ahab and Jezebel are trying to kill him. He's depressed and discouraged. You would think out of all the miracles he would see that he would be beyond those times that where you get a little low. And he just wants to die. And he says this. So he's, he's, he's complaining, God, just let me die. But then he takes a nap and says, And an angel touched him and said to him, Arise, eat. And behold, there was a loaf of baked bread on hot stones and a jar of water there. So he ate and drank and lay down again. He goes back to sleep. An angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey before you is too great for you. 
So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Sometimes you ever feel the journey's too great for you? And then God comes with just a little bread and water and it's enough to sustain you for 40 days. So where does God lead Elijah in his time of discouragement and depression? He was depressed to death. He says, I want to die. Paul at one time says, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I despise of life itself. Which is a very poetic way of saying, I just want to die. It's tough. Sometimes life is tough like that. And where is God then? He is all around us, but often we can't see it. Does God lead Elijah back in the battle? Remember, he had already fried um, what 150 of, of Jezebel's soldiers. He sent three detachments. Two of them got fried. And he, he had done all these miracles. He proclaimed the drought. He prayed for the cloud to come, the cloud the size of a man's fist that comes and, and breaks the drought. He had seen so many mighty things. And yet he's still depressed and discouraged. So God leads him not back into battle, not back to Jerusalem. He leads him to Mount Horeb which is a desolate place. And he led him there to reveal himself. Oh, man, where's my Bible? It's still in my bag. Let me grab it. Because I think it's best if I just read it as it is. There's something about the Word of God that can hold you when nothing else can. You know, when you're in the thick of it, you can doubt that prophetic word. But the Word of God, the Bible says the gospel has a power in and of itself. And it can hold you. So this is uh, 1 Kings 19, verse 9. He says, He came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now he's having a full-blown pity party is what he's doing. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek to take my life away too. And God says to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Then the wind, uh, after the wind, an earthquake came. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a cloak. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Again, he says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life. So now, can you imagine after seeing all that stuff? Now, he was familiar with that. He had seen earthquakes and wind and drought and, and rain before. So he's still kind of stuck in his depression, even though God is manifesting himself in powerful ways and then in a still small voice. So this is what the Lord says. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, and he goes, appoint Hazel, the king of Syria, and appoint 
uh, Nimshi, the king over Israel, and Elijah. You shall anoint him to be a prophet in your place. God replaced him. That scares me. He complained and complained. God shows and manifests himself, shows him many miracles. And still, he's just complaining and complaining. So God says, okay, go, Eli- uh, go anoint Elijah. Give him your mantle. I'll take you home. That is not how I want to go out. But it's difficult sometimes when we get into, we're looking at the wind and the waves. And even when Jesus is manifest, we go, ah, oh, you're just a ghost. Or we don't see him. We don't recognize his presence. And when we do, Elijah did, he didn't respond to his presence in, in, in a proper way. He was still preoccupied with his personal pain, with his personal loss, with his personal suffering. He lost the plot. He lost context. And so God says, okay, go anoint this king and that king, and, and I'll provide another. And he gives the other a double portion of what Elijah has. So where are we at now in our struggles economically, or our struggles with our family, our struggles with our health? I mean, whatever struggles we have, if you could take my word from it, I come from a part of the world where they would kill to trade places with you, no matter what your struggles are. And the life expectancy there is still like that. There's, their only thought for the day is survival, food for today. And sometimes there is no food for today. And, and yet they have such a simple childlike faith. I find so much joy among the poorest people. It seems the the richer people become, the more complicated our lives become, and the more dissatisfied we become. And and we just kind of end up like Elijah, seeing many amazing miracles. And he just kind of gives up. And uh, like what Brandon said, I mean... Or was it you? Is it God? He has a purpose and a plan. And he's given us an invitation to join him in his purposes and plans in our lives, in our jobs, in our, our families, in our town, in our country. And we can step into those purposes and plans or he will move on. He will accomplish his purposes and plans with us or without us. Remember Esther. So uh, Haman wants to kill all the Jews. Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai goes to Esther and says, Hey, babe, I mean, you're, you have access to the king. Say something. Do something. But she's afraid. And she just kind of wants to like, kind of just hide in, in the background. And Mordecai says to her, Babe, Esther, for such a time as this, perhaps you were raised up for such a time as this and positioned for such a time as this. But if you don't, God will raise up deliverance from another source. Meaning he will go on with his, he's going to save the Jews one way or another. You have an opportunity to participate with God's plans here. He says, God will raise up deliverance from another source, but you and your household will perish. So she thinks about it and goes, well, I'm probably going to die either way. But, you know, Haman's going to find out I'm a Jew eventually. And so she rises up, she prays, she sucks it up, she finds her courage, and she approaches the king and saves the day. 
for all of us because Jesus came through that, you know, the, the Jewish lineage. We have those opportunities too. And they might not, you might not realize the full impact of the opportunities you have before you. I mean, Pam, did you, I was just a bum in the woods that you opened your house to. Did you know I would launch out to the nations and save over, well over 10,000 lives by now? And I don't know how many souls, only God knows. You just opened your house and set an extra plate at the table. And she just kind of informally, we would talk over the Bible over and over. We'd just go through verses and look it up in the Greek and the Hebrew. And So I hadn't seen you in how many years? 30-something years. So she drives up from Winters, the Bay Area. And we just, took, we just started where we left off. What do you think this means? <laughs> we spent the night together and just like picked up as if a day hadn't skipped. And, you know, and it's just about loving people where they're at. And we're so often preoccupied, maybe not with the storm, the wind and the waves or our health or whatever. Sometimes we're preoccupied with a sense of our own inadequacies, which are many. We all have them. But it's not about our adequacy. It's about his. He's adequate. I am so ill-equipped to be a missionary with the natural talents you would think would be necessary to be a foreign missionary. I'm terrible with languages. I get lost. I was smuggling Bibles for years through the Muslim and communist countries. I get lost everywhere I go. Once in China, I got so lost, I ended up on a Chinese military installation, the last place you would want to be with a pack of Bibles. And they're yelling at me on the train in Chinese, and I don't speak Chinese, so they just kind of turned me around and put me on the train going out. I forgot to search me, forgot to find all my Bibles. But I didn't even, I stopped even taking maps because I'm going to get lost anyway. But God always, He knows where I am. I'm lost, but He knows where I am, and He always found my way out eventually. You <laughs> never lost forever, hey? Hopefully not. Yeah, he's a shepherd. He still looks for lost sheep. <laughs> There's more than one way to be lost. I mean, I, I get motion sick. I, I get I puke on planes, on trains, on boats, and I travel all the time. And so I'm not really designed, you know, for this life. But it's the it's the foolish things of the world that confound. Uh, the wise and the weak things that confound the strong, the things that are not, that nullify the things that were. God chose the ignoble things. And all he's looking for is obedience. It's just showing up. Uh, he's made use of me. I've, had, I've been very successful in ministry overseas just because I showed up and there was no one else to do it. So he pours out his anointing, his abilities, his resources, and he just uses whoever shows up. So here you are. This is in our prayer meeting this morning. Shelly was talking about this town and this church being like an incubator, a greenhouse, to take just those little seeds, those people, that, the youth, the broken, the, the Dave. We used to call him Lurch because he looked like Lurch. He was so, I, I, the guy had acromegaly or something. He was enormous with scars down his face. And, and he just needed a little love. He just needed someone to pray for him, to welcome him in, to see uh, beyond his outward appearance and, and to give him a hug and say, it's okay, I'm, I'm with you in this. Yeah. And we all have them. They're our neighbors. They're out on the street, you know, just 
They don't even, some of them are so lost, they don't even know they're lost. <laughs> Ever meet people like that? Once upon a time, we all were. We were so lost and not even knowing it. And then the light turns on. You go, oh my gosh. And we became aware of God. And then we became aware of our sin and His holiness. And then we freaked out. And then we realized, oh, but He's love too. And His love covers us. We sang a song this morning in worship about the God who sacrifices. He sacrifices for us. In every other religion, you sacrifice for your God. But in Christianity, He laid His own life down. He sacrificed for us. And he still does because he's our father. He loves us. And he gives us freedom. We spoke about freedom too. And what gets me about freedom, it says for, for freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. It doesn't say for Christ's sake or God's sake or heaven's sake. Freedom is so precious in God's eyes. For its own sake, he sets us free. Even free to rebel against him. Now, regardless of your economic situation, we are the richest people on the planet because we are the freest people on the planet. And even if you have nothing, even if you're living out of a backpack under the bridge, you have freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. We enjoy so many freedoms. So that the world, even today, we're not just the freest people on the planet now. We are the freest people that ever lived in human history. And that's a treasure. How are you stewarding that treasure? Are you taking advantage of that freedom of speech and that freedom of religion and sharing your faith? And I I walk in, I saw the three home groups there, the, the sign up, that people are opening their homes and inviting people in to worship together, to share God's love, to get into the word, to disciple and, and raise to be that greenhouse for those in the congregation that just need connection. Because he's made us all for connection, whether you're married or single or whatever state you find yourself. He made us for connection. And, and some of us don't know how to connect well because we've got some broken pieces. And, uh, but just to open the doors of your heart and your home and welcome people in. And love them where they're at. It's not about getting them to church or getting them to a religious meeting or getting them into anything. But just let me share with you a little freedom. Let me share with you a little love. Let me share with you a song, you know, that the Lord gave me today. It's just kind of like taking inventory saying, okay, what do I have now? Because my earliest memories visiting my dad in prison that started when I was two years old, and that's how what brought me up to Weaverville is visiting my brother in jail. I've always done prison ministry wherever I've gone because I feel right at home there. Every weekend, my mom would dress us up and we'd go visit dad in, in prison. And um, so this one prison, it's in, it's in the, we've done had a few prison ministries, but in this one town, Gondola, it's a room, I don't know, about 14, 16 by 16, and it has like 100 to 150 men in there. Sometimes they stand all night because there's no room to sit down. A prison north of us, 13 guys suffocated overnight because there wasn't enough air in the room. So it's really a lot of suffering. And, and I go in there and I talk about sharing whatever. And they go like, oh, sister, we have nothing. What, they're dressed in rags? Some are naked. They don't have anything. Go, ooh. You, you know, they won't give me, give me, give me. And I go, well, what are you going to give me? What are you going to share? And they go, well, we have nothing. I go, you have a voice, don't you? 
Do you use it to bless one another? Or do you use it to curse one another? You have two hands. Do you help and serve one another in here? Or do you fight? Just start using what you have to bless others and God will multiply it. And they do. And it starts to multiply. And they learn how to love one another. And that stinky place with just a hole in the wall for a toilet. And it's tropical on, under a tin roof. So there's sweating bullets. The stench is horrific. But they just start... They make up their own songs, and then they make up a few dances. And then two or three of them could read. So we get Bibles for the readers, and they break into groups. We break them into groups, and then they're reading a a gospel passage, a a parable. And then they go, well, dramatize it, and they act it out. It's hysterical what they come up with. They especially like the passages about Paul and others being in prison. (laughs) They can identify with that. And they just start sharing what they have. And it's the same for us. You share what you have, and it multiplies, hey? But it's just you've had access. You've been, you're in a country that has a lot of Christ, Christian foundations. Even if you never stepped foot in a church, you were raised in a country that had laws based on Christian principles. That's a treasure. That's a blessing. And so, like, okay, what am I going to do to take something of what I have and share it with another. Freely you have received, freely give. And so even though I was just living in the woods, I was sharing. I, was, I learned whatever I learned about Jesus at Pam's house or at Chris's house or the Harper's house or the Derryberry's house, I would go out and share it. And then God released me to the nations. He is just looking for people he could trust to resource, whether it's with truth or revelation or anointing or the gift of healing or financial resources, if you share it, he'll multiply it. Amen? So think about that. What, what do you have? Despite whatever your hardship is, just laugh, laugh in the wind. Jesus will walk on your waves. He will calm your storm eventually. In the meantime, you go, God, I don't, don't know how I'm going to get through this season, but you will get me through. You'll get me through or take me home. Either way, I win. <laughs> you know? Either way, we win. So shake off discouragement. Shake off disappointment. Shake off disillusionment. Disillusionment's a good thing. Who wants to be illusioned? Right? And live a life of illusions? It is a good thing. And I realize that a lot of people have illusions about church. They get the feelings hurt in church. Or about leadership. Or about, I had illusions about missions. I had illusions about God. I didn't realize how much my culture, my generation impacted my theology about God. You know, I get out there and I'm praying for things and it's not happening like I thought. And I'm trying to create God in my image. And I don't want to get to heaven and face to face with Jesus and realize on that day that half of my Christianity was fluff. It was fake. It was my culture. It was my misunderstanding. So I go, God, I can't make adjustments on then but i can make adjustments now i go disillusion me i want you to identify every illusion i have about who you are about what church is i had a lot of illusions about how spiritual i was i had illusions about how brave i was just take a look at that snake (laughs) and but you get down to the real you and the real jesus and then you can have a real relationship and it's better to have an authentic relationship that's this big than one that's this big and it's fake. It's fluff. Because if you have a pretend Jesus, you have a pretend 
salvation. Stakes are really high. Right? So, Lord, I pray for my dear friends here that you would disillusion us. (laughs) That you would, in these forthcoming days and weeks, in this new year, that you would just, by your Holy Spirit, start to uh, highlight those illusions that we have about you and your nature and character, about your sovereignty, about what our leaders are supposed to do and supposed to be, about ourselves, and uh, that this would be a year of clarity and a year of revelation of who you are as you define yourself, not as our denomination defines us or our culture, but how you define yourself so that we could have real relationship with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.